Our passage this morning is in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We're going to read 11 through 18. This is the section immediately following the passage that we looked at last Sunday on Easter. It seems a little artificial to say that the resurrection has happened, it came, and it went, and now we can move on to other things. So we're going to wrestle with the resurrection a little bit more this morning before we do move on to other things. Young Christians, young theologians, Mary's still in the garden in our passage this morning. What was Mary looking for? If you can answer that, you'll understand exactly what these verses are teaching us. And for the rest of us, look at the ways Mary changes in this one encounter with Jesus. She does not stay the same, which means worship is dynamic. You don't have to leave here the same this morning either. It's quite possible you'll be very different. Maybe not, but maybe. This is the good news of Jesus, the risen Lord. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Risen Lord Jesus, we ask that you will make dead hearts alive, hardened ears to hear, and the sleeping and the stubborn to wake up and submit. Do these things that we may rejoice in your grace, and God may be glorified in the power of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we ask. Amen. Would you be seated? Apparently, Mary was the only disciple who didn't go straight home. She wasn't done. She stayed behind for some weeping. The kind of weeping no one else can help you with. The kind of weeping that no one can talk you out of. The kind of weeping that sounds like some animal of grief clawing its way out of you. In between the waves of her sobs, she stoops and looks inside the tomb. Maybe Peter and John, who had gone inside, didn't see right in the morning gray. Maybe they saw what they wanted to see. Mary had been following Jesus for a long time, ever since he'd thrown a week's worth of demons out of her. 
She followed him all along the dusty roads, through the streets of Jerusalem, all the way to the cross, to the tomb where he was buried. She can't stop following him now. She still needs Jesus to fill her emptiness somehow. And she's looking for a Jesus to pity. That's all she knows to do with her self-pity. She needs to find Jesus to pity him. The Jesus who can only be buried and mourned and missed. So, Mary is like Alice when she chased the white rabbit down the rabbit hole into Wonderland. Alice cried a lake of her own tears when she was nine feet tall and frustrated to be trapped in a cramped hallway and unable to squeeze herself out into the garden through this impassable little door. And then Alice shrinks all the way past normal size to a miniature version of herself and she slipped into the lake she cried and swam in circles with a whole zoo of garden animals that had fallen into her lake of tears with her. And Mary's the same. She's swimming to nowhere in her grief. She's circling. But she's interrupted. There was someone inside the tomb when she stooped to look inside. Two angels sitting on the burial slab, which had been the cold bed of Jesus the last three days. And they speak to her. Woman, why are you weeping? It is not the question. Explain to us why you're weeping. It is the question. Explain to yourself why you're weeping. What can tears do here? Do you even understand what has happened here? Do tears fit this event at all? It's heavenly chiding. They're telling Mary, your tears are as empty as the crypt. Your tears are obsolete just like this place. They're quaint, but they're powerless just like death itself has become. Jesus doesn't need you to weep for him, and he certainly isn't weeping for you. They've taken my Lord away, she says, and I do not know where they've laid him. And then she doesn't even wait for them to answer, maybe because in a flash of insight, she decides the two men inside the tomb must be the grave robbers. But when she spins away from the doorway... And she stands up. She finds herself face to face with Jesus. In her sorrow, she doesn't recognize him any more than she could pick two angels out of a police lineup. In her distracted grief, Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. But maybe at least he'll have some answers. And what if Mary's hunch was right and the figure that she was talking to was the gardener who nicked off with the body of Jesus for God only knows why? Gardeners handle the rhododendrons and the azaleas on the outside of the tomb. Gardeners pull weeds out of the landscape, not bodies from their burial chambers. But to play out Mary's fantasy, let's pretend that the figure is the gardener who had some legitimate reason for emptying the tomb and burying the body in the tulip beds. Mary wants to do the unthinkable. Tell me where you've laid him that I may take him away. Now she's looking for a very different Jesus. 
Not just a Jesus to weep over anymore, a Jesus to pity. But a Jesus who really needs her, a Jesus to be rescued, a Jesus to be reclaimed and retrieved, a Jesus to be saved from desecration, a Jesus to carry. How it would have been heartbreaking to watch Mary go about the work on her own. It would have been painful to watch Mary wrestling the body, yanking at a foot, tugging at a wrist, trying to wrench his mass and heft along with her ineffectual weight, wearing herself out for every friction fraught millimeter, forcing him half upright, scooping him under the arms, trying to drag him up to standing to put a shoulder under him and let him fold over her, but she can't bear his weight and he drags her down in an awkward pile of frustration and failure. She never thought for a moment that she couldn't carry Jesus. And even more than that, it never dawned on her that he had never asked her to. She hadn't put it all together yet that trudging the earth in flesh like hers and lugging a cross and ordering a stone to roll aside and hold its place, Jesus was carrying her weight, not the other way around. But this is no gardener. This is the Jesus Mary is not looking for. There are plenty of things that keep us from recognizing Jesus. Our expectations, our small understanding, our hard hearts, our unbelief, our fears, our sorrows, our self-pity, our disappointments and embarrassments, our arrogance and pride, our sentimentality, our intellectualism, our practicality. Mary doesn't recognize Jesus because in this moment she believes that Jesus is more needy than she is. And it's interesting that in all the questioning she undergoes, Mary can't bring herself to say his name. Even when he asks her an arrow shot question, whom do you seek? It was the very same question he asked of the armed mob that came out to arrest him and drag him off to trial and suffering and crucifixion. And it's the question that has to be asked of every human heart, whether you're a skeptic or a disciple. Whom do you seek? Do you know who I am at all? Will you know me by my self-revelation? Or will you try to know me some other way? Will you make of me something I'm not? And then Jesus cuts through Mary's fog and he cuts through Mary's fiction by using her name, Mary. And she recognizes him. And even then, she can't say his name. She still underestimates him. Rabboni, favored teacher. I have a father-in-law a brother-in-law who both attended the same military college. And during their freshman year, affectionately known as the knob year, the cadets have their names taken away for the entire year. When they're spoken to, when they're addressed, they are known only as knob. 
you are nothing. And my brother-in-law says that one of the most emotional days of his life was at the end of his knob year when the battalion was lined up in formation in the courtyard and the commanding officer walked the ranks and he gave the cadets back their names. And men, I know you. And you're not nothing. And Jesus was saying, even though you don't know who I am, I know exactly who you are. And all that I am, I am for you. And I refuse to be anything else, Mary, because you need me to be all this, whether you know it or not. Every year when Easter rolls around, I get out my copy of Flannery O'Connor's short stories. I don't know why she's attached to Easter for me, but she is. And this year I read, A Good Man is Hard to Find. For the hundredth time it must be. And in that story, O'Connor puts the world-disrupting consequence of the identity of Jesus in the mouth of the villain she's written in this story. The story is about a family traveling to Florida for a vacation, and along the way they hear the terrifying rumors that a criminal known only as the misfit has escaped the penitentiary. And there are whispers that he's headed to Florida. He may be loose in the area. The family gets into a car accident on a deserted country road, and the misfit and his accomplices find them. And the story ends much the way you'd expect, but not without some preaching in the middle of it. The grandmother and the misfit are sitting in a ditch talking while the other members of the family are walked at gunpoint out into the woods. And the misfit says, if Jesus raised the dead, then he'd thrown everything out of balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do, then throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best way you know how, like being a misfit. I wish I'd have been there to seen him do it, because then I would have known. If I had been there, I would have known, and I wouldn't be like I am now. It's an amazing scene, this broken character admitting We can't change Jesus, but if Jesus is who he says he is, it should change us. The trouble is, disciples usually want to change Jesus and not be changed by him. All through the Gospels, the disciples are trying to get Jesus to stop in his ministry and carry it no farther. On the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus is shown in glory, like lying on your back in the middle of summer and staring into the sun until your eyes slam shut in watery self-defense. And Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with him, even though they've left this world long ago. And all of this is shown to the disciples so that they can know that everything Moses wrote in the law and everything the prophets pointed to and promised is happening in the flesh and blood of Jesus. And the disciples, brilliantly missing the point, say, Jesus, let's build log cabins up here. Let's build a monastery. We'll stay up here, and anybody who wants spiritual enlightenment can climb their way up to us. But no matter what, let's not go back down the mountain into fallenness and frailty, into the brokenness and the neediness of sin. 
And Jesus, of course, goes back down the mountain. And he tells them of his cross and his resurrection all the way down. Then there's Peter's confession and heresy. Peter, by faith, has just named Jesus the Christ, a title which means the one appointed to redeem. And in turn, Jesus has just given to Peter a nickname for all the church. You are the rock, meaning as long as you truly believe I am the Christ, you are unshakable, immovable, not even hell can budge you. And then Jesus begins to explain what he must do as the Christ. He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the priests and the scribes, be killed and rise. And Peter pulls him aside to scold him. No one wants to follow a Christ with a death wish. No one can follow a dead Christ. Stop talking like this. It's murder for your image. And Jesus gives Peter a new nickname. Satan, opponent, one in the way. The rock has changed himself into a rock slide. In the upper room, after the Seder at which Jesus revealed himself to be the Passover, he's the sacrifice and the feast. And after Judas is fingered as the betrayer and he leaves into the night to sell Jesus out, And after Peter has been named a denier and all the others deserters, no one wants to leave the upper room to get on with the events of the evening. Who would want to go to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane after all of that? And Mary, Mary wants so many things she can't make up her mind. A Jesus who never died at all. A missing body returned to its loved ones. A Jesus now safely in his tomb so she can visit every day and prop flowers and portraits of him and poems to his memory against the stone and hang it with black crepe paper and burn candles in endless vigil. She wants a Jesus she can miss and cry for and never get over. She wants closure. Oh, and now, now she wants her Rabboni, her favorite teacher, who gave them all a good scare, but by some stroke of incredible luck, it turns out he didn't die after all. We never want Jesus as he is. And the reality is, a Jesus who is alive is easier than a Jesus who is crucified. And a Jesus who is buried is easier than a Jesus who rises. And a Jesus you can cling to in a garden and hold tightly is easier than a Jesus who ascends into heaven. But Jesus never said he would make it easy, only gracious and beautiful. And Jesus is always going on ahead of his disciples. He went ahead of them into righteous humanity and incarnation. He went ahead of them into judgment with a cross. He went ahead of them into death and all the way through it in resurrection. He's going ahead of them again by telling them to meet him on a mountain and he'll send them out with his great commission. Go into all the world making disciples, which means he'll go ahead of them into the world to reconcile sinners to himself. And he's about to go ahead of Mary. When she sees Jesus, she still doesn't see him in his fullness and she, she falls sobbing to the ground 
half for joy and half for confusion. But it doesn't matter. She has him back. And she grasps Jesus by the ankles. Now that he has returned to her, she doesn't ever want to turn him loose. And so Jesus says to her, Mary, don't hold on to me. Mary, don't get used to this. You can't have me like this either. Don't detain me. I have farther to go, and I have more to do still on your behalf. Now, go tell my brothers. My brothers? You know that in all of the Gospels, Jesus has never referred to them as his brothers? Never, not once. Friends, disciples, never brothers. Go tell them I have to ascend to my father and their father. In all the Gospels, Jesus has never referred to God as your father. Go tell them, I have to ascend to my God and your God. Nowhere in all the Gospels does Jesus speak of God as your God. Never has he said, brother, sister, family before. This is a new designation, a brand new relation. In the ascension of Jesus, the completed redemption of sinners, he is carrying us to be part of God's family. And nothing can keep us from it now. And so Jesus says to Mary, I've worn your flesh to the basement of its brokenness and now I have to wear it to the rafters of reconciliation. I have to go ahead of you, Mary, into the perfect fatherhood of God. He's calling me to ascend, to be with him in your flesh so that when he looks upon my bodily presence with him, he will think of you. And he'll concentrate all of his being and activity upon being father to you. There will not be an instant when he is not consumed with being father to you. All your needs, child, are his concern. You're in his heart. And that's why I go. And it should make your fractured, broken heart whole to be known like I have to go ahead of you, Mary, into the perfect Godhood. He's calling me to wear your flesh in His presence, which means you're not judged, you have peace. And it should be a peace that nothing can disrupt. He is summoning you in me with my bodily presence. He's receiving you with all of heaven's joys, which means... He rules over all things. Every atom, every wind, every tide, every rotation of the earth, every drought, every harvest, every ordinary blessing, every lofty mystery, every soaring joy, every plummeting pain. He rules them all and orders them all to line up and serve one purpose and one purpose only, your growing peace Do you have any idea what that should do for your faith, Mary? What it should do for your knowledge of Him? For your service of Him? For your worship of Him? Don't hold me down here because I was sent to carry you up. We can only have Jesus as He is, not as we wish Him to be. 
And there simply is not a Jesus who needs our tears. There is not a Jesus who needs us to carry him. There is not a Jesus who gives himself to be endlessly held in place, frozen in time by us, to soothe our hurts, but not sanctify our hearts. And the good news is we don't have a sympathizing Jesus. We have a saving Jesus. And there is a world of difference between the two. It is from salvation, not sympathy, that Jesus says, Mary, don't hold on to me. It's a softer version of what Jesus said to Peter when Peter pulled Jesus aside to rebuke him. You are putting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. You want too little, and your God and His Savior and the coming Spirit want infinitely more for you. Jesus has gone ahead of you into the Father's presence so that all that's His can be yours. Jesus ascended and bodily in heaven means that you aren't forgotten, not even for a split second. Jesus ascended and bodily in heaven means that he is exalted in the Father's affection and adoration and he has carried you with him. You are exalted. And I don't think that most of us have a theology that believes our God in Christ Jesus is lifting us up and not grinding us down. Which does not mean we won't have tears. It just means we won't be entombed in our sorrows. It does not mean we won't search for the wrong things. It means by God's grace we won't be lost in our searching. It does not mean we won't try to hold on to some wrong understanding of Jesus. It just means that affectionately, adoringly, authoritatively, He'll continue to break our hold. You know what we suffer from most. Not life, not circumstances, not hurt and pain and woundedness, not fear, not even our own brokenness and sin. We suffer from wrong Christology. We do not see Jesus for who he is because he is not the Jesus We prefer, we want the Jesus who might have been or could still be or should have been. And with perfect love, Jesus refuses to change to fit our expectations and he frustrates our demands of him. Seeing Jesus as he truly is makes us recognize how truly loved we are. No guesswork. Only the declarative, decretive love that rings through eternity. And you can't help but be changed from it in the whole person. Emotions, intellect, desires, pursuits, identity, being, self-definition. You know why for us faith feels like performing CPR on a rock. It's because we don't see Jesus for who he is. You know why our hearts feel like the Sahara. We don't know Jesus for who he is. 
You know why our worship feels like dredging up the deepest parts of ourselves and striking only sand? We don't have Jesus as he is. You know why love feels like pretending and play acting or why it turns into perverse idolatry? We don't believe Jesus as he is. And do you know why ministry feels like a chore and why revealed truth feels like a noose? Because with the beauty of righteousness maintained and the power of sin destroyed, Jesus has ascended into the delight of the Father and he's won all of these things for us and possesses them for us and gives them liberally to us And so few of us are looking for this Jesus. In 1987, my band was down in the basement of a friend's house where we kept our guitars and our amplifiers and our drum kit. And we were practicing some new songs. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I was cool. Now I wear a robe. (laughs) We cut band practice short and we turned off the amps and the soundboard and we turned on the television because Paul Simon's Graceland tour had stopped in Harare, Zimbabwe and they were televising the concert from Zimbabwe. Remember, it's 1987. The United States and Europe, most of the Western world, have joined the global protest against South Africa's policy of apartheid. In the middle of the concert, Paul Simon calls Hugh Masekela up to the stage. Masekela is a well-known jazz trumpeter, an exiled South African musician. And he stood at a microphone with a smile spread on his face and a fist in the air and his trumpet hanging at his side. And he sang, Bring back Nelson Mandela. Bring him home to Soweto. I want to see him walking down the streets of South Africa. Tomorrow. This jubilant protest song. Defiant and hopeful. No idle threats in the lyrics. He never castigated the enemy. He just said, this can't last. Let's stop playing at this and be done with it. A few years after that, Mandela's released from prison. They let him out of Robben Island. A few years after that, Mandela's elected president of South Africa. And I turn the television on again. And this time, the images on the screen were hundreds of thousands of South Africans packed into football stadiums, lining the roads between township and city. They're all wearing white. All these black South Africans dressed in white, waving brightly colored handkerchiefs and scarves and flags. And there's very good theology in that. In Mandela's being exalted, they were exalted. In his ascent, they ascended. What was his was theirs. It would never be the same for them. And this is even better theology. That story is more yours than it is theirs. That was true for them only politically. It's true for you eternally. We just pretend not to know it. 
Jesus doesn't want your tears. They aren't worth the salt that floats in them. Jesus doesn't want you to carry him. He never asked you to do it as if you could protect him from some desecration. Jesus doesn't want you to hold on to him in smallness and panic and desperation as if never being separated from him somehow falls to you. He is the eternal pleasure of God. He descended to redeem your traitorous flesh. He suffered and died for the world of wrong that swirls in your heart. He rose to make you the new creation. He ascended to give you all that God wills for you and has chosen for you. And all of that would wash through you like an endless flood of grace if you could just answer one question. It only takes an answer to one question, just one question. Whom do you seek? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord Jesus, be the Savior that you insist upon being for us and continue to frustrate all of our wish dreams and our bad Christologies, the bad frames we paint you in, the bad forms we assign to you. Instead, O Lord, take away our self-pity and our fear, our desperation, our doubt, our pride and arrogance and unbelief, our cherished, favored sins. Take away our idolatries of all sorts and kinds by showing to us who you really are. Make our hearts burst with joy and peace because we have the incarnate, crucified, risen, and ascended Savior for all of these things, we will give you our thanks. And since we are so quick to fear and panic, and since we are so quick to manage our own lives and live by our own strength, when circumstances are beyond our control, we need more assurance that what is yours is ours. So feed us with the bread and wine. Give to us the gospel in bread and wine that we may again know We have been purified with the purity of Jesus and we have been made alive in the deathless life of the Savior. Feed us this way and again you will have our thanks.